Hi everyone, I'm Monica Toriello and you're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the consumer and retail industry. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to be talking about the consumer packaged goods industry, which has struggled to grow in the past decade after about 40 years of strong growth. And its recent struggles are because of a confluence of large-scale trends. Many of those have seen an acceleration during the COVID-19 crisis. On today's episode, we'll be talking to three of the authors of a new article titled, What Got Us Here Won't Get Us There, A New Model for the Consumer Goods Industry. And as you can tell from the title, it's about the trends that have disrupted the CPG industry and the changes that CPG companies now need to make in order to uh, compete effectively. So let's meet our guests for today. So first up, we have Udo Kopka, a senior partner in the Hamburg office. Welcome, Udo. Hello, Monica. Thank you very much. We also have Ed Little, a senior partner based in the Dallas office. Hi, Ed. Hello. And last but not least, Jessica Moulton, a senior partner in London. Thanks for joining us, Jess. Hi, Monica. Let's start by talking about what got us here, the old model for CPG growth. And later on, we'll talk about why that model won't work anymore. But first, describe for us what the old model was. The consumer goods industry is unusual for having had actually a very stable model for a very long time, which most industry players used. And there were five elements to it. First, these players were focused on mass market brand building and product innovation. That helped them generate stable growth and also gross margins that were usually about 25 percentage points above their non-branded peers. It was also about partnering closely with grocers and other elements of the mass channels in order to gain broad distribution. These companies also really thrived in developing markets by building brands and distribution as consumers became more able to pay for consumer goods. It was also about driving cost out of the operating model and finally about using M&A to consolidate markets and generate more organic growth. All of these five elements remain important to consumer goods companies, but they're being affected by these 12 trends, which are growing in strength and particularly accelerated by COVID-19. Ed, you wanted to add something about the old model? I think there's one, you know, at the highest level, what's happened is, I think in many ways relates to fragmentation, fragmentation of consumer preferences, of the retail landscape, of marketing models. And so, you know, basically you have an old model, which was based on scale and barriers to entry, which have either gone away or have significantly eroded. So the, you know, the idea of mass audiences supported by sort of expensive media and promotions sold through a a relatively consolidated retail base with which a manufacturer had an advantage relationship that all has faded away and that's allowed a lot of um, new and small players to come in and capture a lot of the growth they can get on shelf they can capture eyeballs they can more specifically meet the needs of specific consumer segments in a way that mass brands no longer do udo what's your take on why the old model doesn't work anymore first of all let me start by saying the last years have been difficult for the industry obviously 2000 to 2010, I call it the Warren Buffett years. If you invested in consumer good companies, you outperformed the S&P by far, roughly by 8%. Now, in the last 10 years from 2010 to 2020, you underperformed the S&P. So the old rationale didn't work anymore. Now, why is that? That's because we have 
basically two trends coming in at the same time. First, a new consumer segments, the millennials are coming in, and that's not only 19-year-olds or 20-year-olds, this is 23 to 35-year-olds. And secondly, what's happening is we see that we have many more competitors for our share of wallet of our traditional consumers. It's not only our traditional CPG companies, but it's apps, it's media like Netflix, and it's electronic get-gets. So all that together creates the perfect storm, and that's why we argue there's some change needed. Let's talk about that first trend that Udo just mentioned, the millennial generation. So your article lays out 12 trends that have essentially made the old model obsolete. And we won't talk about all 12 on this podcast, right? Listeners can read your article on McKinsey.com, but we'll talk about a few of them. And one of the 12 trends is the millennial and Gen Z effect. Say more about what that means and the implications for CPG companies. Millennials are different than older generations in many ways. They prefer special, different, authentic. Uh, sustainability is important to them. Uh, they tend to uh, be more conscious eaters. Um, but maybe most importantly for this context, they are four times more likely than older consumers to say that they resist buying mass brands. Yeah, and they have very different preferences and, and demands, and they're um, in many ways more varied. I think it is going to be an interesting how those demands and needs evolve because you have two things going on. One is when you think about millennials making purchases based on things like purpose, what does purpose mean? And is, does sustainability, for example, have the same relevance that it did you know, prior to COVID versus other um, you know, value or safety or hygiene? That's one. And the second thing is millennials cover that wide age range and you know, many are going into family formation, which generally change, you know, can change substantially what consumers want and demand. And it's those two, you know, both COVID and family formation could be a, a force for change, which some CPGs will navigate the right way and others will navigate the wrong way. The old days are gone. Why is that? Because the millennials are coming in as a new consumer segment to start the transformation. Three questions. The first question is, what percentage of your product and service portfolio is really made for the segment of millennials. Second question, what percentage of your marketing spendings and resources, including HR resources, is really geared to capture millennials? And that means two-way communications, social media, less ATL and eventually more BTL, or just more social media? I do not know the answer, but I'm asking the question, what percentage of your marketing budget is really focused on capturing this new, not going away consumer segment? And third question, what percentage of your sales budget and resources, including HR resources, are focused on uh, creating the sales in those channels where uh, we see the millennials shopping. These are the three questions. And mostly, if people are honest, they would say, well, actually, it's zero percent. So how powerful would it be if we would be able to say, in two years from now, we want to have 20 percent, 30 percent, and 10 percent of our budget focused on that? 
This would be the start of a terrific transformation capturing this new segment. I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things that you've said. So Jess, you mentioned that millennials are much more likely to resist buying mass brands. And indeed, another one of the 12 trends in your article is the explosion of small brands. That trend is the only one, as far as I can see, that hasn't been accelerated by COVID-19, right? There's been this resurgence of large brands, a shift towards A brands. Is that do you see that as a blip? Is that a temporary thing just because large brands have been more available in stores during the pandemic? Or do you think that'll be a more durable trend? So we think there's a few reasons why large brands did well during the lockdown period. Um, one is because their supply chains and their commercial operations were able to pivot much better and faster than the small brands were. And so, yes, they had much higher availability when retailers were zooming in on core assortment, they were focusing on those large brands. And that gave the large brands a lot of lift, not just during the pantry loading period, but actually for a good period afterwards and continuing into today. The big question is whether or not large brands can retain those gains, and certainly some will. Some will do a great job of capitalizing on all this, quote, forced trial. Others will um, have trouble doing so, especially while we see more and more recessionary pressures crop up and more consumers think more about private label, really watching every, every um, dollar or pound that they spend. It is interesting that, you know, when we survey people, there is a, a lot of brand switching and channel switching and, and store switching going on. A lot of it is driven by availability. Um, but when we ask consumers if they intend to continue that behavior post-COVID, a lot, more than half actually, on the on the brand dimension at least say yes they are they will continue to use to use these new brands and as just pointed out by and large you know, they're often larger brands one implication is how larger how consumer companies think about innovation sort of new de novo innovation versus renovation this is an opportunity for renovation uh, to lock in people who are now using your brands or returning to their brands uh, and renovating those brands to make the value proposition stronger. We have a lot of large consumer goods players who've been working on renovating their brands, in particular, making them more purpose-led. You know, one particular inspiring story, I think, is Rekka Benkiser, who's got brands like Dettol and Lysol, which are right in the core of what uh, consumer need these days. And at the, when the crisis hit, um, some of uh, RB's factories were actually in hard hit areas in China. And they had to mobilize with incredible speed to keep their supply going, keep their products out on shelves. And I think that upfront um, uh, action and the company really rallying around these objectives um, really jolted everyone into living their purpose. I think this is a real opportunity for the industry, you know, more broadly to operate in that mode. I think what we are going to see in the future based on, again, what millennials are looking for is, uh, they are looking for more than a functional definition of a value proposition of a product. So take the water category. We all know that we should drink a two liter of water every day. Now, this is a value proposition for a water company to develop something, an IoT device, let's say on a cap of a mineral water to measure that I'm really drinking two liters of water every day. That's just a completely different purpose. And that moves the needle because this is what millennials are looking for. And by the way, it also creates brand loyalty. So we've touched on a couple of the 12 trends, right? Millennials, small brands. Are there any of the trends that you think are misunderstood or 
underestimated or overlooked by consumer goods CEOs and executives today? I think value, um, I wouldn't say it's overlooked, but it's, it's becoming more important, right? Especially if we have, there's a lot of uncertainty in how long the COVID-driven recession will last. Uh, but it may be here for a while, and it's different from you know the Great Recession in that it's much more labor-led with unemployment rates that are much, much, much higher and GDP declines, which are um, much greater than in 07 and 08. And so, you know, in 07, 08, we saw an uptick in private label. We saw growth in, um, we saw a lot of trade down. And I think those effects are going to um, be even more uh, pronounced as we sort of get through the the um, work from home pantry loading aspect of this and get into get into the recession, I think the ability to serve value segments um, profitably and to create value propositions there is going to become more important. It's really clear what the number one trend on the planet is, and it's rising wealth in developing markets. And what we see in developing markets is the um, continuing rising importance of emerging Asia. Um, and the you know, real battle for attention of the consumer in those markets. I think the trends affecting the channels that consumer goods players sell through is, are really um, very important as well. And the one I'd highlight, because it's the one that's really barreling down the pike, is the growth of the e-marketplaces. And here I mean really Amazon, Alibaba, JD.com, Pingduoduo. Those uh, four players um, have made up 65% of revenue growth over the last five years. And this is an area where COVID is really accelerating things. So during the crisis, we saw Amazon surging by 65% in grocery categories in the US, 80% in major European markets. Consumer goods players need to be really uh, aware of the rising importance of e-marketplaces in many markets around the world. So the importance of value, the rise of e-marketplaces, the battle for emerging Asia, millennials, Gen Z, these are some of the 12 trends. And in your article, you urge CPG companies to confront these trends and face these challenges in part by rethinking their where to play strategies, right? And you say that for a CPG company to create a strong where to play strategy, one critical input is, and I quote, a privileged view of what's happening to consumers in the market. And elsewhere in the article, you call it uh, consumer closeness, right? How can companies do that better? What are companies meant to do differently going forward to get closer to consumers and to find out how their needs are evolving? Well, consumer goods companies are very used to studying what's happening in the grocery channel, and they get an unusual amount of data on it from the syndicated sources. Most of their inter internal processes are oriented around this precious data, but it's incomplete a lot of growth is happening in other channels, and most CPGs are still not very, looking very carefully at that other growth. So the first step is to take a much broader view of where the consumer is uh, purchasing and engaging. If you are looking at the TRS of the most successful and most valuable companies over the last five years, those that own proprietary customer data are the most successful ones. Now. If we look at our industry, we are still using averages, and at best we are looking at six different consumer segments defined very, very broadly. So this is light years away from N equals one and from collecting uh, real customer data. In most of the cases, we are still using some type of uh, 
market agency service-based data. Now, my question is, how real do we want to get to collect customer data and really know our customers? From the small brands and the small companies, we know that some of them know their customers by, by name, by everything, N equal one, because they have a direct relationship into that. For the big brands, this will be close to impossible to, to ever get there, but are we as in aspiring to get close to that? So customer data and managing that data for proprietary insights, like Udo was just talking about, is one of 18 required capabilities that you list in your article, right? And these are 18 capabilities that CPG companies need in order to thrive in the next normal. And these capabilities encompass almost every functional area within an organization. So a CPG leader reading your article or listening to this podcast might think, well, geez, that is a lot to do. Where do I start? And how do I start? So that's my final question for you on this podcast. What is your advice to CEOs about where to start? I think one place to start is, um, you know, where to play does represent the majority of, of growth outcomes on average across CPG. And so the role of inorganic growth and portfolio shaping, I think, is hugely important. And many, uh, many players are not particularly good at it. It should be a capability, it should be an always on capability as opposed to something that is reactive or sort of a once in a blue, blue moon event. And I think for that to work for a programmatic M&A uh, or divestment program to be effective means you've got to have some sort of advantage um, because everybody's looking at the same assets. You know, everybody's looking at the same assets. So why are you the natural owner or what do you know that others don't know? Um, or what perspective do you have about growth that others don't have? And I think that means that these, you know, you kind of need to break out of the sort of traditional category view of what categories do I want to be in and think much more consumer back, not be so category based, be more needs based or occasion based, think in terms of ecosystems, think in terms of solutions that extend beyond the product. How are you going to put different pieces together to form something which is greater than the sum of its parts? You can't be reactive. You need to be proactive and cultivate different sources and channels and relationships uh, so that you can be you can be the lead when something becomes available. Agree with Ed that where to play is critical in consumer goods. And most consumer goods companies need to go through a good bit of portfolio composition improvement. You know, many consumer goods companies have low growth large brands that no longer fit their business model. Secondly, on how to play, consumer goods companies need to digitize most aspects of their model to a much greater degree than they have. And the good news is that a lot of the digitization uh, capabilities and tools out there are becoming more and more mature and more and more easy to implement. So in the new model, consumer goods companies need to embrace data-driven marketing, which makes their marketing far more personalized, reaching consumers with the relevant messages, even while they don't necessarily proliferate their um, uh, offering of products. And secondly, they need to digitize their sales channels, especially to be successful in um, emerging Asia and some other developing markets, but also to work with key accounts in the Western markets better. And another really important aspect of the new model that consumer goods companies need to put in place is a more local operating model. So many consumer goods swung the pendulum way too far towards being centralized. 
and lost the ability to really take advantage of opportunities with consumers and channels at the local level. And they need to reinvest to put more power back into the hands of local decision makers to stay close to the consumer and to respond to local competitors. If I'm a CEO, I'm also, of course, always thinking about how do I create talent advantages and get the best talent. And now I'm thinking about that even more than ever, because I think, you know, there may uh, be a lot of talent coming available from other from other sectors. And in especially in the digital space and some commercial capabilities, CPG is really not the leader. And so I'd be thinking, how do I get that? How do I get that talent into my organization? Um, the second thing is, you know, the talent maybe is becoming less geographically oriented. So I think talent is an interesting one, particularly now to think about in a time of disruption as, a, as an opportunity to build out some of the um, sort of the next generation commercial capabilities that are more data enabled and analytically enabled uh, in revenue management, in marketing, uh, in e-commerce, uh, et cetera. I'm looking at this as the opportunity of a lifetime. Just to go full circle to where we started this discussion, what got us here won't get us there. If you look at the real numbers, like how much money of the budget is really shifted to new opportunities, to new countries, to new categories, to M&A, on average, we found that it's less than 2%. Most of the CPG companies are investing one quarter per year on financial planning, on budgeting, on revisions of budgets and so forth. But then this whole effort only to move 2% to new areas of opportunities. This is what I see actually as the biggest challenge to move from the old model to building up new capabilities and to really make the new model work. What do we want to change? Where do we want to be different and what are the skills and capabilities that we want to bring and build up? That's for me the big question. And then please do not only shift 1% of your budget next year. Make a big bet and a big move. A big bet and a big move. That's a good note to end on. Thanks again to Ed, Jess, and Udo for being with us today. And to our listeners, thanks for sticking around. Until next time, this is Monica Toriello. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on McKinsey.com soon. To suggest ideas for future episodes, please email us at consumer underscore podcast at McKinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email updates on McKinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.